for decades now, the Supreme Court has continued to follow the precedent that money is free speech. Which made me think that if you have more money, is your speech freer than somebody else's? Mm. Because you can't afford to donate. that's, That's an interesting point that people continue to bring up. But I would also point to that sometimes money has an effect of diminishing returns. I mean, we saw so many of these Democratic challengers in deep red states in the Senate races this year massively outraise their opponent and still fall short. They were getting a lot of money, but yeah, we say that money can be an indicator of enthusiasm. But if the money you're getting is not from people who can vote for you, it doesn't matter. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we look to live a more informed life. Our weekly podcast rounds out the edges of unsettled questions in current and historic events, the arts, history, and justice, to name a few. We are connecting the Gateway City to our country's cultural fabric and lives. The show is co-hosted by Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. Brendan Quinn, who's the Outreach and Social Media Manager for the Center for Responsive Politics, OpenSecrets.org. Brendan Quinn joined the center in the fall of 2016. Prior to joining the team, he worked for a number of institutions, including the Irish Consulate in New York City. He holds a bachelor's degree from the State University of New York at New Plots. And this group is very interesting. Brendan, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Center for Responsive Politics. Sure. So we are a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on transparency in the world of money and politics. And that really boils down to three primary areas, campaign finance, lobbying, and the personal finances of our elected officials. Uh, We've been around for a little over 35 years now, and we are happy to present publicly available data on those areas of money and politics in a way that is digestible and readable to the average American. And where do you get that information from? Just because I can hear some people in the, uh, listening at home. Where do they get that information? So we get them from a variety of sources. Our campaign finance data, most of our data relating to elections, we get from the Federal Elections Commission through uh, the filings that candidates themselves and outside groups that spend in elections have to file with the Federal Elections Commission. Uh, We also get some ad-related data from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. Hmm. Most of our lobbying data we get from Congress, even if you've lobbied uh, a department, say, like the Department of Education or the EPA, you're going to be filing it with Congress, with the Secretary of the Senate. Uh, And we also get the personal finance information from the disclosures that members of Congress and members of the White House and various administration positions have to file as well. Now, I think we all can probably agree that this is going to be go down 2020 as the most expensive election in the history of our country. And can you kind of break it down a little bit with the uh, sources of funding and how much was spent as it relates to, like, the presidential election and then maybe the Senate, maybe the House? Yeah, of course. So uh, to start off, yes, this is not just the most expensive election in American history, but by far the most expensive election in American history. Uh, The previous record was held by 2016, and 2020 has more than doubled that. Uh, We're still waiting on the last bits of information. Obviously, we still have those two Senate runoffs in Georgia that are going to be 
very, very expensive, could possibly break some more records than we've already seen broken uh, this cycle. But right now, our estimate is the 2020 election, when all said and done, will hit about $10.8 billion, uh, which is, again, more than double uh, what the 2016 election was, uh, which was close to uh, $6.6 billion. So the presidential election is responsible for just a little bit more than the entirety of the 2016 cycle was. So 6.62 billion for the presidential election this cycle. And then Congress, there's a lot of races going on there, so a little bit more, uh, that's about $7.25 billion. It just rolls off his thing. It just rolls out. It's amazing the figures that you're throwing out and how much they are. It's one caveat I do want to bring up uh, for the presidential election, uh, that does include the self-funding billionaires who competed in the Democratic primary. Michael Bloomberg is responsible for over a billion dollars of that. Oh. Uh, and Tom Steyer also spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I, I got a little caveat here, because when I looked at the list on your website of all those uh, Democratic candidates and Republican candidates— mm-hmm. And you looked at all of them; they were all millionaires. So even even if they they had like one point three million, you know, they were a millionaire. But then mm-hmm. you got Bloomberg, who's you know he's got obviously donated a billion to his campaign. But another little caveat here is that I, I looked up. Okay, in the year twenty thirteen, the U.S. spent sixteen billion annually on counterterrorism, and we're just a couple billion mm-hmm. away. And just spending it on elections, and we spent almost all of that on counterterrorism in 2013. This is—is is this kind of crazy to you all, seeing this uh, amount of money that's being spent like this? We were expecting the 2020 election to break records, especially once we saw simply how many people were competing in the Democratic primary. We knew that was going to be a little more expensive than usual, uh, but we are still shocked. I mean, we originally uh, at the beginning of October. Uh, end of September, when we were doing our calculations, had estimated that the election would be about $11 billion. Uh, And then we had to recalculate when we got uh, third quarter fundraising numbers, which cover July through September, uh, and all of these fundraising reports were coming in. Uh, There was a huge boon uh, to congressional candidates, particularly Democratic candidates, following the news of the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and knowing that there would be a fight brewing on that front. Just a huge deluge of cash was pouring into these campaigns, Uh, even into some that Democrats had very little chance of winning. Uh, There was just a huge increase in donor enthusiasm this cycle. Yeah, it kind of brings me to a a point that relates to that. Were there some states or races that spent a real— skewed amount of money per capita like i think about alaska and they had a senate race up there and then i think about a place like north carolina mm-hmm. which was a real hotbed right. and i'm wondering yeah as you as you break it down by population what how much money is kind of spent and is it like skewed one way or the other uh yeah no i'd say definitely population of the state doesn't really impact the the money as much as the competitiveness of the race, or at least the view uh, or the perceived competitiveness of the race, because it's not just people who live in that state that are contributing to the candidates. It's people, particularly now that it's so easy to give online, people from all over the country. So you mentioned North Carolina. North Carolina Senate race this year is by far the most expensive congressional election that has 
ever happened in American history. Over $280 million was spent on that election. Uh, Four races this election cycle. This is combining candidate spending and outside group spending. Uh, Over four, four races were over $200 million this cycle. I can imagine the Georgia race is going to be uh, going to exceed that. Probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're uh, we, we don't really know yet, so we can't really say. But uh, it would not surprise me if both of those races cracked an additional hundred million dollars in spending, particularly because control of the Senate is going to hinge on who wins those races. You know, and what's interesting is even during the pandemic, there's uh, many people who are donating. I, I noted from some of the information on your website that women are smashing donation records. And as you mentioned, there's kind of in, an increasing amount of donations coming to candidates who aren't running in their state. In other words, you're donating to somebody in another state race. And that seems to be happening a lot, especially I looked at what was coming in on one candidate from out of state versus in state. And the in-state contributions were very minuscule compared to what was coming in from out-of-state. Yeah, in these really high-profile Senate races, the majority of the time, most of the money is coming from out-of-state. Uh, because these races capture national attention. They're on national news programs. A lot of the people, particularly the incumbents, are household names or became household names throughout the course of the race. Uh, and people are motivated to either donate to someone they like or donate to the opponent of someone that they dislike. Now, talk even about- if it's not their oh. even if it's not their senator or not their state because maybe they live in a state that either like y'all are in Missouri, Missouri didn't have a senate race this cycle or you even live in a state where the senate race is not that competitive but you want to feel like you're making a difference, you want to either, you know, if you're a democrat this cycle, you want to help flip the senate or if you're a republican, you want to help your party keep control of the Senate. And so you give to the people where you see uh, it's perceived that you could be making a difference with your contribution. Now, I know in some of the classifications of how contributions are designated, some are classified as large contributions and some are classified Mm -hmm. as small contributions. What's the difference? Where's the breaking point there? Yeah, sure. So uh, this changes uh, from cycle to cycle, the limit that you're allowed to give to a candidate. Uh, But so this cycle, the maximum that you can give directly to a candidate is $2,800. You can actually do that twice, once in the primary, once in the general. That's going to be adjusted for inflation every election cycle. Uh, But if you're giving over $200, so between $200 and one cent and $2,800, that that is considered a large contribution. And if it's over that cutoff, uh, the campaign has to do what is called itemize. Uh, your information to the FEC. So they have to disclose to the FEC the donor's name, the donor's occupation, and the donor's zip code. Uh, Some campaigns choose to itemize contributions under $200. They can set their own arbitrary limit beneath that, like $100, $50, etc. One thing that has been really interesting to us as the explosion of online giving Uh, has continued to permeate throughout the United States, uh, is that online fundraising conduit, so Blue gets a lot of uh, media attention. That's the online fundraising conduit used by almost every Democrat. Uh, Republicans introduced their own this cycle. It's called Win Red. It's still taking uh, a little bit of time for Republicans to start using it just because it's so new. These conduits itemize everything. So whereas before we had them, we had very limited information on the names 
zip codes and occupations of donors. Uh, when you're giving through these online conduits, we're getting information on everyone, which to a transparency group that likes to follow the money uh, and see where candidate support is coming from, it's extremely valuable to get that information on these small donors uh, because we can see who is supporting these candidates. And it gives us, as we were speaking about before, a little more information into the geographic location of these donors. And we can see, oh, he's getting a lot of small contributions for his Senate race, but we know based on the zip codes that most of them are not from within his state. So I know that I gave a lot more information on the question you asked. Does that make sense? No, yeah, that was that was great. No, uh, that kind of information I think is important because I think it's uh, helpful for people to understand that their information is going to be out there. Matter of fact, I went on the website and I downloaded a CSV file, like uh-huh. like a, a Microsoft Excel file, yeah. and was able to see individual donations, their addresses, what they did for a living, really? and who they donated to. Yeah, it was it was very inf- informational, very transparent, very transparent. Yeah, wow. And it, this this that's, kind of that's what we advocate for, and it, it is very telling because it allows you to see what kinds of interests are getting behind and supporting. It was, every every candidate you can think of. Yeah, it was interesting to see the states that supported um, the Democratic candidate for president, Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and interesting to see the states that supported President Trump. And then it was interesting to see the cities, because the common denominator was D.C. Yeah. donated a boatload to both. Huh. I was very surprised. Yeah, so the D.C. area, because politicians spend so much time Uh, In that area, it's where they hold a lot of their fundraisers. Uh, So when we talk about the D.C. metro area, that not only includes D.C., but parts of Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia, and that is in almost every member of Congress's top five and almost every president's top five or presidential candidate's top five, just because there are so many people that have vested interests in what happens in politics and who controls Congress in that area. Now, one of the things I think people do think about and they hear about uh, occasionally because they'll see ads that are not uh, endorsed, quote-unquote, by any campaign, they're Mm -hmm. done by a PAC, is what was kind of the percentage of the overall funding for president in this election that was due to PACs versus, like, uh, Joe and Josephine, who are out there in general public donating Monday? Yeah, so one quick thing I want to clarify is the difference between a traditional pack and a super pack, which is what uh, you were talking about. Traditional packs are a lot older. They've been around since about the World War II era, uh, and they're often associated with uh, an organization or a corporation, what is referred to as corporate packs, or they're associated with a politician, which is what are called a leadership pack. And these traditional packs can take up to $5,000 from an individual and give up the $5,000 directly to a candidate once per year. Uh, so those aren't going to be really spending too much independently of candidates. They can, uh, but a lot of it is smaller amounts, and a lot of it is just going directly from individuals to the PAC and then from the PAC directly to candidates. Now, these super PACs are what get a lot more attention uh, and are spending huge, huge amounts of money. So super PACs are a lot newer. They've only been around since about 2010. So uh, their influence is fairly new, but still fairly big. Uh, They can take unlimited funds from almost any source you can imagine from corporations. Corporations can't give directly to candidates. They can't give directly to super PACs, uh, as well as individuals or nonprofits uh, or anything in that realm. 
uh, and then they can spend unlimited funds on what is called independent expenditures. So uh, they can't coordinate directly with a candidate they're supporting uh, or even a candidate that they're attacking the opponent of, uh, but they can spend in those races, and they have to disclose, we spent $7 million on the South Carolina Senate race, and all of it was in favor of Lindsey Graham or things like that. So when we're talking about the presidential election, uh, the candidates themselves still raised and spent a little bit more. Uh, based on the numbers we currently have, the most recent filing we have for the candidates goes through October 14th. Uh, the candidates combined spent $1.5, sorry, $1.5 billion, uh, and outside group super PACs that were supporting President Trump, attacking President Trump, supporting Joe Biden, uh, or also spending in the Democratic primary, uh, spent a combined $710.8 million. So not as much as the candidates, but still nothing to, <laughs> nothing to be brushed aside. So how do these, uh, we've heard this term uh, maybe in the media, dark money. How, do, how does that play in? Where, where is that in these super PACs where they don't have to necessarily report the specifics uh, publicly? Or how Some does that of it work? Is. So super PACs uh, are on paper transparent. Super PACs are required to disclose where their funding comes from. But another area that is allowed to spend in political elections uh, are nonprofit groups. Most of them are coming uh, under the IRS 501C designation. Uh, and when we're talking about dark money, 501C4s, 5s, and 6s are where a lot of that is flowing from. 501C4s are the somewhat vaguely named social welfare groups, uh, which is where there can be a lot of playing with what actually the group's intention is. 501c5s are where most unions fall, and 501c6s are most business lead, chambers of commerce, things like that. So all three of these designations are allowed to, just like super PACs, spend on independent expenditures as long as it doesn't become their primary purpose. So up to 49.9% of their spending can go to that. Uh, and they can do the independent expenditures just like super PACs, but they don't have to disclose who their donors are. And they can also give money to super PACs. So a huge trend we saw this cycle, because people have become more aware of dark money groups, and when they see a 501c group spending an election, they know or they can do a little bit of research and know that it's really hard, if not impossible, to find out who that group's donors are. They say, all right, then we're just going to give a huge chunk of money that we'd spend on independent expenditures ourselves to a super PAC, which is on paper transparent, uh, and then that super PAC can spend all of that money attacking the people we don't like or supporting the people we do like. Uh, and a lot of these groups are attached to party leadership. It's not just some shady group hiding in the shadows where we have no idea who at all is working for it. <laughs> a lot of them are connected to Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, the leaders in the House as well. Uh, and Sometimes they even share offices, uh, but they have separate arms that are the nonprofit group and the super PAC. The super PAC is transparent, but then it gets sometimes more than half of its funds, close to all of its funds, from the nonprofit group that doesn't have to disclose its donors. And if that sounds confusing, that's on purpose, because these groups are purposely <laughs> trying to make it so that it's hard to trace the money back to its original source and find out who it is. We also saw this cycle, um, uh, an increase in what we call pop-up super PACs. Oh. So as I said, the most recent fundraising data we have 
uh, is from October 14th uh, because they have to file before the election, but not in the days immediately before the election, not in a couple weeks or so. This varies from state to state when we're talking about primaries. Uh, and so we'll see a super PAC appear within a couple weeks or even a week before the election, start raising and spending a lot of money, uh, and then its commercials or its ads that it's putting out are influencing the election, but voters don't find out who was funding this super PAC until after the votes have been cast. Interesting. You know, when you were talking... <laughs> My head is spinning. <laughs> this is all great information, I'm try- and I'm, I'm staying up with them. <laughs> it's, it's very valuable, it is. Brendan, to, to know this, because I, I think it gives people an appreciation for that, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of money flowing to get these things going. Matter of fact, I was looking at one thing we had talked previously about money from out of state. In the South Carolina race, where they spent... One hundred and sixty-four mm. million. The Democratic candidate, ninety-three percent of his money was from out of state, where wow. the Republican candidate was eighty-seven percent was from other states. It's like you know, if if gee, if you could just limit the money that was going on on a candidate's race in a certain state was just from that state, uh, where would we be? Right. Maybe in a state of confusion. Yeah, you might be in a state of confusion, but there have been numerous numerous cases before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court since the 60s has continued to side uh, on the precedent that money is free speech. So any attempt to limit the amount of money that goes into the elections is almost guaranteed to lose the Supreme Court, because since the 60s, so for (laughs) decades now, the Supreme Court has continued to follow the precedent that money is free speech. Which made me think that if you have more money, is your speech freer than somebody else's? Because you can't afford well, to donate. That's, that's an interesting point that people continue to bring up. But I would also point to that sometimes money has a, an effect of diminishing returns. I mean, we saw so many of these Democratic challengers in deep red states in the Senate races this year massively outraise their opponent and still fall short. They were getting a lot of money, but yeah, we say that money can be an indicator of enthusiasm. But if the money you're getting is not from people who can vote for you, it doesn't matter if you live in Missouri or you live in Virginia or you live in Maine and you're really enthusiastic about getting rid of Lindsey Graham and you give as much money as you can to either Jamie Harrison or the groups that were supporting him, you still don't get a vote in that race. That's true. So the, that enthusiasm can only go so far if it's coming from people that aren't able to vote for you. That's a great point. And speaking about Missouri, what insights can you offer about the Missouri races as it relates to fundraising or money that was spent? Over the governor. Well, uh, the most, the most uh, eye-catching uh, race in Missouri, obviously you folks didn't have a Senate race this year, but usually you're well-known for highly competitive Senate races, at least in 2016 and 2018, uh, was Missouri District 2, uh, which is, uh, you know, and... And Wagner's seat, Democrats thought they really had a chance uh, of knocking off uh, Ann Wagner. They did not succeed in that. Um, I'm looking at the numbers for that right now. I'm actually, based on what we were just talking about before, kind of surprised how little money came into that race from out of state, particularly because Democrats were so highly promoting that that was one of the races they thought they could win. Um, both of the candidates, both Representative Wagner and her challenger, uh, got over 70% of their funds from within the state of Missouri. 
uh, which, given the highly nationalized nature of races uh, this cycle, uh, is a little surprising to me. Um, I'm not surprised that a lot of outside money was in the race as well. Uh, Over $10 million just on opposition ads. Uh, $5.5 million spent by Super PACs opposing Representative Wagner, uh, and over $5.4 million spent on ads opposing Jill Shup. I hope I'm pronouncing Shoop. her last name correctly. Shup. Shup. Uh, yeah, so a lot of outside money flowing into that race, and it kind of, again, speaks to uh, the nationalized nature of some of these competitive races. The top two spenders, both of which spent uh, close to $2.5 million dollars, uh, are party-tied committees, the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the House Republicans super PAC, and then the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, which is on the side of the Democrats, obviously, uh, were the top two spenders, the only ones. Oh, no, there are a couple more. House Majority PAC, again, associated with Democrats, spent over $2 million. So these party-connected groups uh, are really able to wield their influence. Uh, in the age of super PACs, parties have moved a little bit away from spending money directly from the party and more to these party-connected super PACs, uh, which are a lot freer to raise and spend unlimited sums of money. Give us an overview statement in encouraging us about what you guys do there. Um, we fight for transparency, and if more money is going to be flowing into American elections, we're going to try our hardest to make sure that you know where it's coming from. Brendan Quinn, who's the Outreach and Social Media Manager for the Center for Responsive Politics, opensecrets.org. Thank you very much for being on. We, we appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoy this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.